Following that fine mockumentary this week, you may be thinking that I will speak on the relative merits of pacifism. I've already been asked this morning, but in fact I will not. However, I will keep that in mind and may spring it on you at some point. We'll see. Instead, I want to begin by asking you to think of a time when you felt truly embarrassed. Even better, if you can, think of a time when you felt embarrassed in ministry. Now, I'm not talking about a time when you were intentionally shamed by someone else. No, just the usual run-of-the-mill embarrassment. You forgot to show up to an important meeting at the right time. You called someone by the wrong name at an awkward moment. Your spouse is sitting beside you at a formal brunch with your new congregation, and you're eating raspberry-filled crepes, and suddenly your spouse's knife slips off his fork, and he flicks great globs of raspberry preserves down your off-white sweater. That hasn't happened to you? Be thankful. Whatever it was, remember that experience. Yes, I'm going to give you a moment to enjoy that. How did you feel? While you're sinking lower into your chair, let me talk for a moment about embarrassment. It's very unpleasant. We want to forget, but usually we can't. And according to that great guide of all guides, Wikipedia, embarrassment increases greatly when it involves official duties or workplace facilities. Yes, think of the worship service, the minister's workplace facility. Embarrassment increases there tenfold. This sermon is about living out of our true selves and honestly sharing who we are. And I don't think I can give this sermon with integrity without sharing a bit about myself, unfortunately. And so I'm going to get things started by talking about my most embarrassing moment in ministry, by far the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to me in a worship service. About nine years ago, thankfully it's been a while so I can talk about it now, Our son was less than a year old, just a baby, and my husband David was a pastor. I was focusing primarily on childcare. I got a call from an acquaintance who knew I was very interested in all things spiritual and spirituality, and and she asked me to preach about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost at her church. Well, I enjoyed that opportunity to get out from the diaper duty and to stay connected in ministry And I was happy to say yes. A day or two before the service, I started to feel a bad cold coming on. You know how it is. Some people, it starts up here and some down here. And mine was up here, kind of beginning to move downward. But it was nothing I hadn't managed before in ministry or anywhere else. And I was really excited to preach this sermon So I went to the store and got some cold medicine. Hadn't tried it before, but you know, they're all the same. And I decided not to call it off. That morning, my nose was a faucet. 
but I felt I could get through that sermon all right with a full dose of daytime cold meds and some breakfast. I arrived at the church and the service began. I was feeling good at first. The medicine was going strong, but I was starting to feel a bit hungry and suddenly more than a little bit nauseous. At that moment, I was called forward, and I got up with my notes, just as I did today, but this time praying desperately for help. And I made it through the first few minutes when my heart started going wild and my stomach had a mind all its own. I knew I needed to sit down that minute or I would be sharing something not in my notes. <laughs> I stopped speaking, and I looked down at that dear woman in the front pew who had invited me, I apologized and found my way to the nearest chair on stage. Now you need to know that this is a very orderly church and this little interlude was not in the bulletin. The poor worship leader got up and frantically began to call out random songs from the hymnal. He was trying to get the people to sing, but I knew that they were all looking at me. I was just trying to get some deep breaths and figure out what I was going to do next. And after a few minutes, I realized I was actually feeling better sitting down. And for some unknown reason, I figured I could preach the rest of the way through that sermon from my seat. I got up again, apologized, stated I hadn't been feeling well, but didn't want to leave them without a preacher that morning. And I felt I could finish my sermon sitting down. So I pulled up a chair beside the pulpit and I made it through the rest of the way, determined, yet all the while wondering what I could possibly be thinking to continue on like this and whether anything I was saying was even sinking in after all of my theatrics. Following the service, I returned to the front pew and several people came forward to greet me and check on how I was doing. I sat on that pew, wishing I could crawl under it. They were kind, and I was mortified. I thought on the way home about how I had so obviously failed to deliver a message from God I was so passionate to give. I had been weak in front of countless people I didn't even know. Didn't matter that I was sick. At that moment, I did not ever want to preach again. By God's grace, I got over that foolish notion and laughed about it. But I did wonder about one thing. What caused me to feel so terribly, utterly embarrassed over the incident? It wasn't the illness. If I'd been sick at home, it would have been no big deal. It was getting sick in front of others at a moment when everyone was focused on me, at a time when they were expecting something from me. Just a side note here. As I was preparing this sermon and finally agreed before God to share that story, I started to feel a little sick. A new head cold had arrived. Fortunately, Rick is very competent, and if I need to call on him, I know I can trust him to find a few hymns at a moment's notice. However, I am feeling just fine this morning.
Embarrassment is one example as, of how we as human beings have a natural concern about how others perceive us. We also have a natural desire to please others, and this is most obvious in very young children. We maintain these concerns about pleasing others, even into adulthood. Yes, even teenagers care about pleasing their parents. All of us have expectations placed upon us by others. Here at the seminary, we expect you to do your reading on time. The government expects you to pay your taxes. And your family expects you to spend time with them and provide for them. Leaders of congregations live in a world of expectations, sometimes obvious and sometimes much more subtle, as I'm sure you know. We can feel the pressure to live up to the expectations of those who look up to us for some reason as models of the Christian life. I spent an afternoon with our Doctor of Ministry students this fall talking about what it meant for them to live up to their congregation's expectations. Some noted that they felt a kind of pressure to have it all together, to be at peace with the big questions of faith, to be faithful in personal prayer and Bible study, the things that the congregation doesn't know about, but of course is happening faithfully, to have loving relationships with family members, no arguments on a Sunday morning, to have their own temptations very well under control. They need to come to worship and teach with passion, to be connecting with God, all the while thinking of the details. And they need not reveal when they personally feel distant from God. On a Sunday morning, they need to come into church and greet everyone with a smile. Because pastors always have good days on Sundays, don't they? Pastors learn to wear masks. It's part of the job. To cover up what they really think and feel when those thoughts and feelings don't match what others expect of them. And we see the damage of living behind the mask when the shadow sides of well-known religious leaders are found out. How embarrassing. My story is nothing compared to some of the embarrassment people have experienced. We are shocked. These people seem like they had such great wisdom and maturity. And what we don't see is the honest struggles and the debilitating effort to live a double life and to meet expectations. We all wear masks, at least to some degree. And in my research uh, for the Faithful Practices Project, I met with one pastor who's become a marvelous spiritual director for other pastors, a pastor of pastors. And this is how he puts it. I see a lot of pastors burning out. I see a lot of pastors just succumbing to and yielding to the pressures. Pastors who feel like they're the lone dog, the lone ranger, that they can't reveal their cracks and their warts, their shortcomings. I just can't handle that. I get ready for work the same way everyone else does, and I'm subject to the same temptations they are. I like to shake pastors sometimes, allow them to tell me where they're really at and how they're feeling, 
And in some way, I can salvage or help shake their souls to allow them to say, no, God really is at work here, and I just haven't taken the time to see it. Some of them need a reality check that they are not God. This is a gut-wrenching response from one pastor who has seen colleagues take up the persona of perfection, something described by one of his directees, a young pastor, as the responsibility of becoming the God guy, the one who represents Christ before others. And when we take on this persona, it is hard to accept our own weaknesses and fallibility. The truth is, we are not God. Parker Palmer, one of my favorite authors, writes about wearing a mask in the teaching profession. He notes that teaching is always done at the dangerous intersection of personal and public life. As we try to connect ourselves and our subjects with our students, we make ourselves vulnerable to indifference, to ridicule. When we teach, we talk about the things we care about, but what if our students are dozing off? or surfing the web while we're talking. Now, I know that doesn't happen here, but what if it did? What does that say about us? Our teaching and our personhood are so closely connected. Pastoral ministry also happens at the intersection of the personal and the private. If we put our true selves out there, warts and all, in our preaching, in our programs, in our pastoral care, will we be accepted or ridiculed. If we go even further and give those we give others a little glimpse of our struggle or weakness, will they still accept us? Palmer says that we can become so used to living a divided life between the true and the false that we actually forget the mask isn't even real like the child who acts disruptively or plays the class clown to get attention. We learn how to get the approval and support that we are looking for from our parents, from our friends, from our bosses, from our teachers, from our congregations. Ultimately, we risk losing touch with the true self that God has designed and brought to life. The doctor of ministry students I was talking about earlier tell me that there is a good bit of pressure to conform to expectations in their context. And this leads me to wonder, amid all the expectations, what does God actually expect of us? Now we could go to scripture and, and quote verses out of Micah and other places, what God expects about how we love others and love God and live out the implications of those relationships. These are important. But for today, I want to ask you a very simple question. What does God expect of you personally as a leader? Hang on to that. We have the great gift of stories of Jesus' own experience of leadership. And we'll glance briefly at a few moments in his life in John's Gospel to consider how he handled expectations. Of course, we can't expect our journeys to be the same. 
We are not God, nor is our call going to be the same. Yet as Christ's followers, there are things we can learn from his approach to leadership and to living out of the true self. One of the lectionary passages for this time of year happens to come from John chapter 2. And here we find Jesus attending a wedding with his family, a very normal activity he might have engaged in and we might engage in today. Scripture gives us the impression that Jesus has been a dutiful son, yet there is tension. Even as a child at the temple, we wonder, whose son is he? Here in John chapter 2, Jesus is now a young man, perhaps at the same stage of life as some of you, on the cusp of beginning a significant life of ministry. Mary, his mother, is involved in the wedding somehow. We don't know what her situation is. But she is very concerned about that thing we talked about earlier, embarrassment. She's worried about the hosts and how embarrassed they might feel that the wine has run out. This may not make a lot of sense to us, but in that time, it was a pretty big deal. Mary wants to save them that discomfort, and she approaches her son, who she has found is quite resourceful. His response is rather shocking to our ears. Get this. Woman, what concern of that is, to, is, it, is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I don't know about you, but me, as a mother, would like to hear Mary say. Excuse me, young man. Two things here. First of all, I am still your mother. Secondly, I raised you better than that. There's a need here, and we've got to do something about it. Now, as we all know, calling Mary woman probably meant something a little different in those days than it does today. But as I read the commentaries on this text, I find that there are several that agree that Jesus was putting some distance between himself and his mother. He's making his own decisions about the timing of the signs that he is destined to accomplish. He loves and cares about her. I mean, no one can dispute that given the scene at the cross. But Jesus will not be pressured. His relationship with his heavenly father overrides all. Mary doesn't understand that what he does here goes far beyond this simple wedding. Yet ultimately she still tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so Jesus is in a bind. His mother has expectations, but he has a timetable. What to do? In this case, he does the dutiful son. He decides to quietly do as his mother asks. He faces the dilemma and makes a decision. He helps a family to save face and meets the expectations of his mother. Haven't we all? We jump ahead to John 6, a time when the life of ministry has become intense. Word of Jesus' signs spreading far and fast and in the ordering of the gospel Jesus has just fed a crowd in a truly miraculous way and in verse 14 of John 6 we read when the people saw the sign that he had done they began to say this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king 
he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now there is more pressure than ever. Not just family, followers, multitudes of people. The number of people with expectations is climbing dramatically. The pressure to be named king is not just an option, but in fact something they want to force on him. Jesus shows again and again that he is aware of who he is and who he isn't. He's not a political king. The only way to avoid the situation is to do what many of us might do. Get out of town. Time for solitude in the mountains. Time to pray and be with the Father and get centered again in who he is. Our next and last vignette comes toward the end of his ministry career. He is less popular now with some. In fact, life has become rather dangerous. Again, Jesus faces expectations he must address. In John 11, Jesus receives word that his dear friend Lazarus is dying. And now there are plenty of people in this story that have expectations. The disciples don't want him to go anywhere near Judea. His life is in danger. Who wouldn't want to protect their leader? At the same time, Mary and Martha are desperate. He is the only one who can save their brother. And as the story progresses, it seems at first that Jesus is pleasing no one. Not the sisters, because he waits too long. And not the disciples, because he lands up going anyway. What good was this? A moment of failure, it appears. Yet he is once again about an entirely different purpose. He knows who he is, and ironically, Martha does too. We find in the story, he is the son of God. And his work is to bring resurrection and new life. And ultimately, for Lazarus, he does both. And when we look at these stories and many others throughout the gospel, we know that Jesus knew his true self and lived it out without a shadow of a doubt. Every action flowed out of union with the Father. And we can learn something about, from this about seeking God's approval, yet still meeting genuine needs of others. Note I said needs, not expectations learning to identify the difference. As ministers, we have to meet some expectations to keep our jobs. We have to work with people. And hopefully much of the time this will fit with how we sense God moving in our own lives. But always we have to center ourselves in our identity as children of God, beloved sons and daughters, deeply cherished intricately created, unlike any other. There is only one parent whose applause we seek. And I know from experience, watching my children on stage at a concert or a performance, looking around, where's mom, where's dad, looking for the proud parent. We need to be like those children, honing in, on that one face in the crowd, seeking to please that one. Whatever your role in ministry today and in the future, I want to leave you now with a few insights 
for your own self-care. And if you ever take a class with me, you will get this probably more than a few times. That's okay. You need it. And I hope it will become a part of you so that it will feed you and guide you as you leave this place. Learn to be in community and also learn to be alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer does that so well in Life Together. If you haven't read it, do so. For some of us, community is easier, and for others, solitude is the natural way. But we need both to be healthy. It is especially important when expectations in ministry begin to cloud our judgment that we need to learn to get alone and set aside the clamoring voices. Perhaps a cabin in Colorado. What do you think, Dean Garland? I am amazed at how Jesus knew the need to do this at the right times, and afterward, he often made big decisions. Remarkable. We need to be with God, sometimes in silence, to make space for God to speak. We also need to attend to ourselves, asking key questions. Why do I feel anxious about this church decision? Why am I concerned about a certain relationship? Sometimes we need to find a mountain, not in central Texas, but somewhere. We need to find a mountain and get away to pray. Second, find a group that you can trust. If you can't find one, start one. Jesus had a group, and he knew how to share life with that group. These are a few people who can tell you the truth about who you really are and help you stay accountable to it. Of course, it's my hope that your covenant group becomes that. We are working on developing more aspects of the covenant relationship that have to do with accountability. But if it's not there, find it. Listen to each other. Ask honest questions about how God is moving in your life today. Third, beyond the group, find a soul friend. There is an ancient Celtic proverb. A person without a soul friend is like a body without a head. I actually believe this to some degree. Jesus brought his small group of friends with him into the highest moments like the transfiguration and to the lowest of lows in the garden. Even there, he calls out to them, help me, be with me in my need. One of the saddest things I have heard came about pastors, came out of a pastor's conference some years ago. The speaker asked participants to raise their hands if they had a best friend they confided in. Out of a room full of pastors, only a few raised their hands. What does that tell you? I'm shocked. Trying to be the lone dog is risky business. If there's one thing you remember from today, please remember this. Pastors need friends, just like everybody else. You need someone. Cultivate those relationships now, even before you are in ministry. Relationships that will stay with you. Finally, actually two more. Find opportunities to tell the truth about yourself to the people in your congregation. We see Jesus doing this discreetly time and again. 
Now, I'm sure you won't be unwise and go on and tell your worst story about your worst temptation the first time you preach. However, a little bit at a time gives life and courage and hope to those who are sitting in front of you that share those same struggles. Hopefully, they can be grow to be more honest with you as well. Now, finally, when you engage in worship, keep in mind the audience of one. The first time I entered the sanctuary of the church where I would be a pastor, an assistant pastor, I stood behind the pulpit knowing I would be preaching regularly, and I was humbled by the awesome responsibility to speak to God's people. What would they think of what I had to say? I was so young. And as I looked out, I could imagine the seats filled. But then I also noticed something else. I noticed all of the empty space from the pews on upward. And I imagined that the Spirit of God filled the rest of that space. In fact, there's a lot more space filled with God than with people. And on that morning, I knew that if I got up front and I remembered the audience of one, everything would be okay. I have come to believe that pastors genuinely need to worship. And if they're preaching every Sunday, they need to find a way to worship within that. A place, a time, maybe in times away in periods, but also within their own body. And when they are leading, to remember the one who is easiest to please, who looks on as a proud parent while we share who we are. I'm going to pause now, because this is kind of my way of doing things. I'm going to give you a moment of silence and let you talk with God about what God expects of you. Listen, and then respond. Know that you are loved and cherished by the one who made you just as you are. Amen.